Hello and welcome to episode 18 of season two of the More Math for More People podcast. It's January 10th, 2023. Cheers. everyone. I'm Misty. And I'm Joel. And this is the More Math for More People podcast brought to you by CPM Educational Program. On this podcast, we discuss the CPM curriculum, trends in math education, and share strategies to shift instructional practices to create a more inclusive and student-centered classroom. We also highlight upcoming CPM professional learning opportunities and have conversations with math educators about how they do what they do. And we always try to have a little bit of fun and laughter as well. Indeed we do. So come and find out what shenanigans we're up to on this episode. Boom. So we've come to the time of the program Mm -hmm. where we discuss something about today. Yep. What is today's day, Joel? Well, it's fun that we are here now in 2023. (gasps) And today is National Oysters Rockefeller Day. I don't what is an what is an oysters Rockefeller? It's so delicious. Okay, is it oysters Rockefeller or is it oyster Rockefeller? Oyster uh well let me let me check. Oysters. <laughs> it's oysters, oysters Rockefeller Day. Yep. Oysters Rockefeller. Not it's oyster a, Rockefellers. That makes sense. That's pluralizing right. the oysters. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's so delicious. I, I do love so just raw oysters, but I do mm-hmm. love the Rockefeller as well. And Okay, but what does that mean? What is it different? So what they do, so the raw is, you know, they're cold and yeah. they oh, I, get, I get the okay. oysters on the half shell. I understand That's that. okay. And so the Rockefeller is actually started in New Orleans, but they this guy made a recipe and it, it's uh, grilled and cooked and mm-hmm. they put ingredients on top. Like there's some, I'm going to get this wrong probably, but there's like cheese <laughs> and onions and stuff. They just grill on top of it. Wait. Okay. Wait. Yeah. Is the oyster still in the half shell? Yes. Okay. So, so do you like, you open it up and you grill it in the shell? That's right. And you put some stuff in it like cheese and onions? You put some stuff. Yeah. You put the stuff on top. It's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a delicacy. Okay. And like I said, it started in New Orleans as this. So, so it's kind of this French idea sort of thing, but delicious. Well, I'm going to pass on the onions, but okay. I'll, I'll have to look up the exact ingredients for you, but, but yes, there's, uh, it, it, it's this, it, it's like, um, like a cloud. It's like a, it just feels so good. <laughs> it's delicious. Okay. I, I don't know I, how else okay. to describe it. It's yeah. apparently very delicious. We cannot describe <laughs> the ingredients for you. And you'll just have to take our word for it. That it's very delicious. You, though maybe you have had one. Well, I was going to say, some of you have probably had one. I haven't had one. I have had oysters on the half shell often because mm-hmm. do you, do I live like in the that? Pacific Northwest and there are a lot of yeah. oysters. They're very yeah. delicious yeah. and they're very fresh. We have oysters on the half shell whenever we can. Recent, recently, I was at the... Northwest Mathematics Conference, That's true. which was in Tacoma. Mm-hmm. And I went to a place and I said, give me a half dozen oysters. And they said, well, all we have are, I think they said, all we have are Pacificas and we're not sure if they're good. And I said, give them to me. And they were like the best oysters I ever had. They were so delicious. We're not sure if they're good. I'm not sure I would order like, we have these oysters. We're not sure if they're good. Do I you mean tasty totally or do you yeah. mean too old? Because I don't <laughs> want to eat oysters that are too old. 
Well, let's see with the Rockefeller, you get mm. the grilled, so like you cook all that old stuff. So you out. don't want an oyster that's old. No, that's don't true. eat ever that's eat old true. oysters. You're right. No, you should always eat very fresh <laughs> oysters. There's something about you shouldn't eat oysters in months with R, but I don't really understand that. I've heard that too, actually. It doesn't make any sense. To so would that be January, February, March. There's a lot of months with R. <laughs> September, April. October. Yep. Yeah. December. November. Yeah. Um, apparently, you should only eat them in May, June, July, okay. and August. All right. <laughs> but you did not do. Maybe that's I why they didn't them know all they the time. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. There's a lot of really good oysters. A lot of various mm-hmm. kinds up here. So excellent. Absolutely. All right. So, but you could make them into oysters, Rockefeller. But you'll have to yes, you Google a recipe because we don't know it off the top of that's our heads. Right. And you could enjoy some oysters, Rockefeller. Celebrate the new year. And there you go. But it's January. That's right. <laughs> so, oh, dang it. I don't, I, I, yeah, I don't, maybe that's an old wives' tale. Who knows? Anyway, you can celebrate the new year with some oysters, Rockefeller, and have fun. Before the CPM holiday, we had the great pleasure of having a conversation with Peter Lillidal, author of Building Thinking Classrooms, and we were able to have part one of that conversation. This week's episode, we get to hear part two of that same conversation. So welcome to 2023, and let's take a listen to part two of the Peter Lillidal conversation. As we said, you know, we have read the book. We love the things that you've said. They, a lot of them connect to some mm-hmm. of the principles that CPM has been using in writing our curriculum for some time, You know, trying to match a curriculum to instructional practices. And uh, there's a couple things. We, we actually asked our PL team for some questions. And there were a couple ones that came up a, a couple times. And so we wanted to kind of ask you about those and get some of your thoughts on them. Sure. One is that, so in the book, you talk about using teams of three right? That teams of three you found work best. And we wanted to kind of hear some more about that, like how and why you saw teams of three working better than teams of four or teams of two and in what ways and how, how did that collaboration really like come about better within those, that size of a team? Okay. So first of all, this was not hard to discover. Like this was (laughs) This, be- this presented itself as obvious almost immediately when we started exploring this idea of random groups, that groups of three were just by far more effective than either groups of two or groups of four. Now, now there are some caveats to this, mm-hmm. but like I said, the, the answer presented itself long before the explanation. And the, the thing about answers is we have reproducible results that say that groups of three are better. I don't know if I'll ever know all the answers for why that is, but I'll tell you some of the things that that are noticeable with groups of three. Okay. When you do groups of three, you hear three voices. When you do groups of four, you hear three voices. Hmm. When you do groups of five, you hear two voices. It's really interesting how that that plays itself out. Groups of four almost always devolved into a group of three plus one. And there are some intuitive reasons for that, maybe. Uh, one is that there just isn't enough bandwidth for four voices sometimes, mm-hmm. right? But if you think about how we communicate with each other, even now there's three of us, the way we communicate with each other, mm-hmm. three people communicating seems to 
allow everyone to constantly be active and engaged. But if we add more people, then there's a real sort of, I got to back off to leave room for others and so on. And, and I become more passive and more active and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. It, groups of four also allow someone to hide. It's someone to sort of drift into the background without the others really noticing it and so on and so forth. Groups of two are not bad. Uh, and in fact, what we discovered was that if you can't have a perfect map group of three, you go with some groups of two. Mm-hmm. They were better than groups of four. But to have those groups of two close to each other. And there's a, there's this really weird irony in the research and the psychology of kids is fascinating. You make a group of four, it doesn't work well. You put two groups of two next to each other and they start talking to each other, it works great. <laughs> and it's 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 just this sort of two groups of two coming together never really takes on that identity of a group of four. It, it somehow everyone stays active and engaged in a different way. Now, groups of two have some advantages in certain circumstances. Uh, one of which is if you have some someone walking in late, it's really handy to have a group of two to plug them into. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, coupled with handing them the marker, usually that student is brought on board and on sort of onboarded and caught up and so on and so forth. You plug someone into a group of four, often they will always stay on the periphery. They, they, they don't actually quite penetrate into that collective that's going on. Now, there were some places where groups of two were actually optimal. Okay. One of which is when we deal work with very young children, kindergarten, grade one, grade two. Mm. And it's not that groups of three weren't better than groups of two. It's just we need to start with groups of two to really make sure that that collaborative capacity is developed. Hmm. Students come to school playing in parallel. They don't, they don't naturally collaborate well. Yeah. Then they eventually enter a phase that I like to call the polite turn-taking phase, which is where they'll share a resource or they'll, but, but, but they're not impacting on each other. So they'll share a marker, for example, at the whiteboard, but I'll work with the marker doing my thing. Then I'll hand it to you and you, you do your thing. And it's, it's polite turn. Right. Eventually they start to collaborate. And when that starts to become more and more cohesive, then we can add a third person. There was some other places where groups of two were better. For example, if you were doing a manipulative heavy activity, we found that groups of two were better. Mm-hmm. Not always. It depends on the manipulator. It depends on the activity. But it just seemed like there was too many hands when there was groups of three for some activity. And, and that also turned out to be true when they were doing any sort of exploration using technology. We found that if they were using tech for example, at their desk doing exploration, that a group of two seemed to be better. Two students, one device mm-hmm. was, was seemed to work the best. But by and large, it's groups of three. Now, why that is, you know, the theory that I that I use in the book and that I think is a pretty good explanation of it is called complexity theory. Mm-hmm. Complexity theory says that in order for a group to be generative, to be effective, it needs to have a balance of redundancy and diversity. Redundancy are the things that students have in common. And they need those things in common in order to be able to start communicating to each other, right? So common language, common notation, common vocabulary. We need things in common in order for communication and collaboration to to even take off. But if all we have is redundancy, then the group is no better than the individual. We also need to have diversity. And so diversity are the things that students bring to the group that's different from everybody else. When the group sizes get too big, the diversity goes up. That's great. But redundancy comes down. And groups of three seem to have this perfect balance of redundancy and diversity that just seem to make things work. And coming out of that was this realization that diversity is actually a strength, which is something that if you've 
you know, that education hasn't really embraced, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Like we know it, we know it. I'm not the first to show that. Joe Bowler has shown that many times, but somehow uh, on the ground, we treat diversity as a burden to bear rather than a strength to be celebrated. Yeah. Well said. The question is always how, how do you differentiate? How do you manage all of this, this range of abilities and, and everything else as opposed to using it to your advantage yeah. as part of the mm-hmm. process? Yeah. I think that some of the questions sometimes, and, and I think sometimes in some classrooms, the hesitations around going from fours to threes, for example, is that it increases the number of groups. Right. And then teachers can get anxiety around trying to manage or, or just, you know, circulate amongst, et cetera, that, you know, from the difference between seven groups and 10 groups can make more challenging. Yeah. So you're managing, so now you're managing 10 groups that are working, but you're managing 10 groups that are working better than trying to manage seven groups where each one needs some sort of intervention in order to, to keep everyone involved. Right. So you're either spending time trying to manage a larger quantity of groups or you're micromanaging groups. That's a good trade-off. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so you also talk about the, this concept of thin slicing. Yeah. And I've read the book, all that kind of thing, but I think I need some more elaboration on that. We, we, we both still, still feel stuck on this one. <laughs> yeah. It's challenging for me to get my mind around. So can you elaborate on thin slicing and, and having the set of thin slice tasks right. to help students? So thin slicing is I'm, I'm not even really sure how I came up with that term for it, but it's it does stand in contrast to thick slicing, for example. So think of a concept. Think of something we're trying to teach. Solving one and two-step equations, factoring quadratics, completing the square. Okay. Like it, it doesn't matter what it is we're trying to teach. We know that this topic that we're trying to, to move students through is actually made up of a bunch of subtopics and that these subtopics can be sequenced in a way that is both logically and didactically ordered. And what I mean by that is that if we we look at it purely from a a logical mathematical perspective, it makes sense that we're teaching students how to add fractions where they have a common denominator before we teach them how to add fractions that have a different denominator, right? Sure. So there's that sort of logical mathematical progression, which is what in Europe they often refer to as didactics, which is how do we sequence a set of activities in such a way that from a mathematical, logical perspective, this narrative makes sense, right? So this is where we are conceptually. This is where we want to get to. What is a reasonable sequence of steps to take the person on this journey? Now, these steps can be big, that's thick slicing, or they can be small, that's thin slicing, right? Okay. So... What we found was that we can actually take students from point A to point B, where point A and point B are really far apart, by us, by creating a sequence of tasks that are very small increments difference between them. So that task three is just marginally different from task two, and so on and so forth. But over the, the sum of all of these marginal differences, we actually get a huge difference. And that's what thin slicing is. Mm-hmm. So think of think of a worksheet. Think of a textbook. You open up a resource, a curriculum. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's already written in this regard, more or less. Sometimes it's written from a perspective of practice, more so than a perspective of uh, scaffolding learning. But it's there's still a progression. Mm-hmm. And that's what thin slicing is, which is, okay, so let's say I want to teach students how to complete the square. Well, we're going to start with a very particular question. 
uh, where the middle term is even. Mm -hmm. And the leading term is one, mm -hmm. right? We want that leading coefficient to be one. We want that, that second term to be even. Yep. And then we, we start to unroll this. And then we, we play with that third term. Do we want it to have a surplus? Do we want it to be a deficit? And we, we play with that, right? And then we go, okay, so now we have to make a choice. We have to make what is next in this logical sequence. Well, we have a couple of, we have two choices. Either we make that middle term odd, mm -hmm. which means we're doing fractions, right. or we make the leading term, the leading coefficient greater than one, which means we're going to have to do a little bit of factoring to begin with. And then we have to decide which of those paths we're going to follow and then take the second one later. But it's really about building that sequence. And, and what's interesting about this, when we do build the sequence and we build it well, that students actually learn in task N something that allows them to do task N plus one, right? And, and so on okay. and so forth. And, and that's what thin slicing is, is really about this idea that rather than preloading them with all the knowledge to be able to do the last question, it's about what can they learn from the first question that'll help them do the second question, which will then they'll learn something there that'll help them do the third question. And the learning doesn't have to be huge. It just has to be incremental. And then they learn and they learn and they learn. And then the learnings that those, that some of those small incremental learnings amounts to a large amount of learning. And that's what thin slicing is. And it's hard Like I'm talking about it from a curriculum perspective, but it makes more sense when you think of it from a, uh, a flow perspective, as in Mahai, Chicks and Mahai's flow, which is this idea of how do we maintain a balance between the ability of the doer and the challenge of the task so that as the doer's ability grows, we marginally increase the challenge of the task so that there's always this balance being maintained, but always being led by Well, led by the growth in the in the learner, allowing us to increase the challenge, which then promotes further growth in the learner and so on. So we end up with this visually a, a, a graph that is, looks like a staircase that gradually mm -hmm. as their ability increases, which is on the X axis, along the X axis, there the challenge increases, which is along the Y axis. And then you get this stepping up. And by the end of it, you can be very, very far from the origin where they had very little ability and very little challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So does that help you a little bit? It helps a, a great deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you for explaining that. Thanks for listening to part two of our conversation with Peter Lilladal. Next episode will be part three in our final installment of our conversation. Please tune in then, and we look forward to seeing you there. So that's a wrap for this episode of the More Math for More People podcast. For more information and to stay connected, you can find CPM on both Twitter and Facebook. The music for the podcast was created by Julius H. and can be found on pixabay.com. Join us for the next episode of More Math for More People. What day will that be, Joel? It'll be January 24th, National Compliment Day. Well, Joel, you said that really great. Oh, thank you, Joel. See there? You can give yourself a compliment if you like. You can compliment a stranger you could spread some good vibes on social media maybe you could get a hold of friends family co-workers and just send out
vibe of good and, and others will appreciate that and follow. And I just think what does make a good copy.